This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I sit down with former United States attorney and current candidate for Attorney General of Rhode Island, Peter Nerona. Peter Nerona is a native of Jamestown, Rhode Island. Though currently running unopposed, Mr. Nerona presents an in-depth platform on issues ranging from gun safety to corruption to environmental protections. Our conversation touched on Peter's vision for Rhode Island's future, navigating the current election season, and his time spent with former President Barack Obama. Uh, we're here with Peter Nerona on a beautiful day in uh, Elmwood at the Lofts. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for making the time. Appreciate it very much. No, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, just give the listeners kind of a, a background of sure. uh, your work and, and kind of your life's journey so far. Yeah, sure. So I'm a native Rhode Islander. I was born uh, and raised in Jamestown. I'm actually a fourth generation Jamestowner. Portuguese on my dad's side. My dad was born on the island, so go way back. Uh, my family worked on the ferries all those years and at the bridge. And then my mom's an immigrant from Germany. I went to North Kingston High School and graduated um, in the uh, mid-'80s, went to Boston College, Boston College Law School. When I graduated from law school, um, joined a big uh, Boston law firm, Goodwin Proctor, which you know, then it had 300 lawyers, has 800 today, really learned how to practice law, I think, at a pretty high level. It's a great training ground for young lawyers. But you know, I had this, um, had this urge to do two things, really get into a courtroom a little more than I've been doing, and also... Um, do some public service. So in 1996, I moved back to Rhode Island. Met my, had met my wife in Boston. We moved back here. Memorial Day weekend, actually, in 1995, so 20-some-odd, 23 years ago this weekend. And I started working in the AG's office, uh, Attorney General's office. Uh, Jeff Pine, later Sheldon Whitehouse, kept me on. I spent seven years there. Uh, meanwhile, my wife and I had two, two kids, two boys. Um, in 2002, I went over to the U.S. Attorney's office as an assistant U.S. attorney. In 2009, Senators Reid and White House recommended me to President Obama to be the U.S. Attorney for the District of Rhode Island. I served in the Obama administration until I stepped down in March of uh, 17. Uh, 6, 17, yes. And then, uh, and now I'm running for Attorney General for the state of Rhode Island. And you've, you've got uh, a platform that's pretty clear about you know, yeah. the, the work you've done and where you want to take the state of Rhode Island. What would you say is your kind of priority, you know, generally yeah. speaking. Sure. You know, yeah. So, so, yeah. So one of the reasons I'm running is I felt like the work we were doing when I was just attorney is largely um, unfinished. There's a lot more work to do in the areas I thought were important to the people of the state of Rhode Island. You know, one of them is public corruption. And I always start there simply because, you know, we did so many public corruption cases when I was U.S. attorney. We prosecuted the three uh, North Providence town councils for taking bribes. We prosecuted Mayor Moreau um, for uh, taking bribes. We prosecuted uh, Speaker of the House Gordon Fox on a public corruption case. We prosecuted uh, House Finance Chair Ray Gallison um, as well. And so uh, I expect that that work will continue. I wish that it were not going to be the case, but I think that it is. And I think it's really critically important that our public officials do the right thing. The vast majority of them do, but there are some that don't. Um, and when they don't, not only is it wrong simply because when you're a public official and you, and you uh, swear an oath to serve the people, you ought to do that because that's what you've committed yourself to doing. But I'm absolutely convinced it has a negative impact on our economy. Um, nobody wants to do business in a state that's for sale, right, or has a reputation for being for sale. And um, so if we don't change that reputation, if we don't stay on top of those cases, my sons, who are nearing adulthood, um, 
I'd like them to come back if that's what they want to do. Um, if we don't have an economy that um, that provides jobs for all of our residents because businesses don't want to do here do business here that's bad for all of us so that's got to be a priority what else this opioid crisis that we're facing um you know we're losing between 300 and 350 rhode islanders every single year to opioid overdose when i was u.s attorney you know we did lots of big uh cartel related uh drug trafficking cases and we need to continue to do that work on the federal and the state side but we've got to do more than that we've got to use the bully pulpit of the office as a as uh, ag as i did as u.s attorney to reach people particularly kids when i was u.s attorney I made 28 visits to high schools uh, in that last year. In fact, I did a lot of them after I'd stepped down. And the reason I did them was I wanted to talk to kids about making smart choices. You know, I would do, I would walk into those auditoriums around the state, um, everywhere from Woonsocket to Newport to Providence, Central Falls, Barrington, Bristol, you name it. Uh, when I asked kids, do you know what an opioid is? Not a lot of hands went up, but I asked them what a Vicodin was or, or what a Percocet is or what an Oxycontin is. Every hand went up. If I asked wow. them, if I asked them, how many of you have had your wisdom teeth out or know someone who did or had a sibling who did? Every hand went up, right? And the connection between these pills and heroin and, and fentanyl-laced heroin, which is heroin, which is what's killing people so quickly, is incredibly close. And those pills are in medicine cabinets around the state. And worse than that, we were finding just uh, as in the last couple of years as I was leaving office uh, that drug dealers were taking fentanyl and pressing it into pills that looked like oxy. So I would say to the kids, it's, if someone hands you a pill, it's bad enough that it's if it's a legitimate pill, right? But if it's a fake pill, that can kill you almost instantly. Uh, and I would say to them, look around this auditorium and imagine everyone in this auditorium being dead this year, just in Rhode Island from overdose. So we've got to continue as people who have that bully pulpit, who have that ability to reach people, to talk to kids about making smart choices. And the other thing we did around the opioid crisis was, and I think this is work that has to continue, is we did town halls around the state at night where I would moderate a panel of people who do treatment work, um, who do substance abuse counseling, uh, medical experts from the Department of Health and, and, uh, and elsewhere, to talk to adults about raising awareness around the problem. And as time went on, so many, um, so many adults with adult children would get up and, and say, look, I'm really worried about a child. I can't get treatment. Um, or we can't get them treatment, or we can't keep them in treatment, or we can't afford treatment. And so again, you got to use the bully pulpit of the office to advocate for affordable and accessible treatment. Another priority is the criminal justice system. We've got to have a criminal justice system that's smart in how we take on, on crime. Um, in the Obama administration, uh, we really focused on what we called a smart on crime program, which was on the enforcement side, identifying and um, targeting those people who truly drive violent crime. And by that, I mean people who shoot, frankly, other people. They're the ones who drive crime. They pull a lot of other, particularly young people, into their orbit. They've got to be uh, the focus of our law enforcement efforts. At the same time, we've got to understand that young people who are sort of at that tipping point, some that have already tipped a little bit into, into contact with the criminal justice system, they can be saved, brought back, if we invest the resources in getting them straightened out. And I don't think straightening them out means sending a nonviolent offender to prison for 30 days or 60 days or six months. I'm a big believer in diversion programs. People that we can get turned around, we've got to get turned around. And on the other side of it, when people are getting out of prison, um, and I talk about this a lot. There's only 30 guys that aren't coming home from the ACI. Of the couple thousand or more guys out there and women out there, all but 30 are coming home. So when they come home, what happens? I'm convinced that if we don't get them back into the workforce, they're going to reoffend, which means we have another victim. So we have another crime. We have to send them back to the ACI at tremendous expense to the taxpayer. So I've often thought of it this way. If you want to make a prosecutor pay attention 
to criminal justice reform and being smart about who we're prosecuting and for how long, if we're recommending incarceration, put the prison budget in the prosecutor's budget the way it is in the Department of Justice when I was there. And you'll make prosecutors pay attention. So I think taking that kind of holistic approach to a criminal justice system engenders trust in it, faith in it, and it makes a lot of sense across a lot of layers. I think the other priorities um, are largely in the civil division. Um, There's a lot of work that the civil division in the AG's office does. There's a lot of civil work I did when we were U.S. attorney with a team that I had. And I think it's work that uh, in the Trump administration is unlikely to continue in two specific areas. One is around the environment. I think after the state's people... Our greatest asset is our environment here in Rhode Island. We need to protect it. I don't think that this administration values environmental protection very highly. So I think AGs around the country, including in Rhode Island, really need to step up and do environmental enforcement. We did a lot of that work when I was U.S. attorney. I think that work has to continue. I think civil rights work really has to be something that AGs continue to prioritize. Because, again, I don't think that this administration that we have now will will be as robust in that area as we were in the Obama administration. And it's not just uh, uh, civil rights in the context of excessive use of force by police officers, which happens in a a very few instances, is important, and we need to focus on that. But things like um, access to voting, um, uh, access to housing, you know, fighting housing discrimination, uh, those are basic fundamental rights that all Rhode Islanders have, and AGs need to be there to step up when those rights are being violated. So, you know, there's lots of other things we can do to protect uh, Rhode Islanders. Issues around cybersecurity, really important. Things around consumers, right? We've got to reach consumers uh, to protect them from the scams that we have out there. Elder abuse, another really important subject area. So there's a lot in that portfolio, but those are some of the things that when you, someone asks me what needs to be at the top of, of the thinking, those are some of the things. I've heard a lot about uh, a lot of questions from listeners as well to uh, or feedback from listeners about guns and mm-hmm. how we proceed, especially with related to school shootings. Sure. Um, where do you stand in, in mm-hmm. just a, a blanket sense on, on yeah. the issues of guns? Yeah. So I think gun safety is uh, obviously critically important. I have, you know, have had two kids go through school. I have one who's going to graduate from my youngest is going to graduate as a senior in high school. So all of my all of my thinking about guns is actually on the website. So if anybody's interested in actually seeing it, PeterNorner.com, issues gun safety. So I think there's a lot that we can do uh, to improve gun, you know, issues around safety in schools and elsewhere. Some of those things we ought to be able to agree on. So, for example, we ought to be able to agree on universal background checks. makes no sense to me that you have to do a full background check if you buy a gun from a federally licensed firearms dealer, but not from somebody at a gun show or who's doing a private sale. So nationally, we ought to have universal background checks. Uh, I believe in red flag legislation, both in Rhode Island and across the country. You know, people for whom there are warning signs about uh, the potential harm to others and to themselves, right? Suicide's a big part of this discussion too, right? Um, I believe in legislation to kind of get guns out of their hands for a period of time. Let, let's see exactly where they are. I believe in that legislation. Um, you think it'll hold up in spite of ACLU challenges oh, and everything, I do. you think it'll go I through? I do, yeah. As yeah. long as the due process protections are built into the statutes. And look, Connecticut's had a statute for almost 20 years uh, that's withheld, that's withstood scrutiny. Rhode Island's will be newer if it gets passed by both houses uh, and the governor signs it, but it'll withstand uh, due process scrutiny as long as there's a hearing. So the, the person whose uh, guns are being seized has an opportunity to contest the seizure, has a chance to come back and appeal it. I think as long as we build in those due process protections, it'll withstand constitutional scrutiny, and we should have those due process protections the way we do in a lot in lots of other areas. So I think that's good legislation. Um, uh, I'm in favor of uh, of only allowing uh, police officers or school resource officers to carry in schools. Look. Police officers are trained to handle uh, firearms. They go through mental health checks 
annually. I think that's important for everyone who's sort of caring, uh, particularly police officers, particularly in schools. You know, I don't like the idea of a of a um, of uh, a teacher being armed. Many of them don't want to do it, but also if if law enforcement's going into a school, how do they know who who the who the perpetrator is? If a teacher is carrying a firearm. And, you know, obviously it doesn't have a, um, you know, a sweatshirt or a jacket that says, look, I'm a teacher. I'm the one who's OK. Right. How do they know who the real threat is? So uh, I'm not in favor of arming anyone other than a, a, a trained police officer in a school. In terms of high capacity magazines, I, I'm in favor of legislation which would limit them. You know, I think every second we save, you know, I talk to to people who um, uh, who are against that position and I respect their views and I respect the Second Amendment. But if we can save even the one, two or three seconds, it takes for someone um, to change a magazine. If that saves one child's life, it's worth it to me to have that legislation. And I am in favor of a ban, which would only go forward because all of the uh, assault-like weapon bans or weapons like AR-15s, bans that we're talking about, are only going into the future. So it's not going to take any guns off the street. That's why I don't think it's a panacea to the problem that we're facing. But I am in favor of that as well. And we had one when I was an assistant U.S. attorney federally. Um, you know, I know people differ about its effect, um, but I didn't feel like we had any trouble enforcing it, frankly. Um, and I think, again, if, if, if the balance is this is a weapon where police who are responding to these incidents are, are, are outgunned, right? If the round that's typically used, not always, but typically used in that firearm or that kind of firearm causes tremendous damage uh, to someone who's shot by it, then again, if I'm making a choice between protecting children, between protecting adults, then that's a choice I'm not prepared to make. And I know that they're used um, in the, you know, if you look at the gun deaths across the country, the, those kinds of weapons are used in, in a very small number of deaths, but they do seem to be the weapon of choice for these school shootings in particular. And so when I weigh those things in the balance, that's where I come out on those issues. Yeah, it's such a, you know, an emotional issue mm-hmm. that you sometimes wonder if we could all just, every person could just sit down for, you know, three days and, and hammer something out, you know, somehow, but we've been at it for Decades now, and yeah, and, and I think, years. yeah, I think, well, I think there are some things where we ought to be able to agree in the middle. So, you like on the on the website, you know, when I when I talk about these issues, I say, look, this is what I think. Do I think we're likely to reach agreement on all? I think I have ten things on there. I just mentioned some of them. Um, do I think we're likely to reach agreement on all ten? Probably not. But we ought to be able to agree on some things in the middle. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, all of us should advocate for our positions, and I advocate strongly for the ones that I hold. But we ought to be able to agree on something, and we shouldn't let our our divisions at the margins prevent us from getting to some sort of agreement in the middle. And I will tell you, I've had lots of conversations with people who are probably on the other side of this issue, generally, for me. We've had good, respectful um, conversations back and forth. And so, you know, I have some optimism there in the long run. Yeah, I think so. And leadership as well. I, I met Frank Sykoshin mm-hmm. and some of these guys that I went to one of their rallies. Yeah. And um, yeah, when you when you speak with them, they are, they're reasonable people. Sure. They have they have similar long term goals, I would right. say, as 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 your position or whatever, right. frankly, is mine as well. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's gotten so emotional and so much Facebook you right. know, memeing about it that it's right. basically almost seemed to have lost the, the essence of the debate at this right. point. Um, Rhode Island's interesting right now. Uh, it kind of a a nationwide phenomenon, but we're seeing uh, a progressive mm-hmm. wing of the Democratic Party right. emerge uh, in the gubernatorial race. We have Matt Brown mm-hmm. and even Paul Roselli's in there. Obviously, Aaron Ra- Representative Regenberg right. and the Lieutenant 
gubernatorial race. And in, in, to a certain extent, Lincoln Chafee, Governor right. Chafee, throwing right. his name right. into right. the right. ring. Right. Uh, what, so what's going on? Do you think as AG you'd be able to, if, if some of these uh, state offices did mm-hmm. change hands to a more progressive platform, do you think as AG you'd be able to broker, you know, kind of be the uh, the center point of, of reason in the state <laughs> if, if it gets pulled, so, you know, where it, it would almost right. seem like they, they would be so extreme that it would be difficult to work. Yeah. You know, I I can only draw on my experience as U.S. attorney, you know, and and leading that office um, for, gosh, almost eight years and uh, having a lot of constituencies to deal with just within the law enforcement community, let alone beyond it in Rhode Island, where, you know, you know, in a perfect world, all law enforcement would be on the same page all the time. Uh, We weren't always. And so a lot of the job uh, as U.S. attorney was. You know, getting people in a room, getting them to work together, not just law enforcement, on other issues like um, prisoner reentry, uh, same kind of a thing. You know, again, that bully pulpit function we're talking about. You know, I think I like to think that my experience has uh, helped develop some of these skills. I, you know, I also think that, you know, I think we can agree to disagree about issues and at the same time still find ways to work together on the things we do agree with. I mean, I, you know, one thing I learned. You know, when I was U.S. attorney is that even if I disagreed with somebody on a particular issue, whether it be case related or a way of looking at the world, let's say, um, we still were able to find common ground. Right. Um, You know, some of it was around the opioid crisis. You know, Um, as prosecutors, we have a lot of discretion. Um, And sometimes, you know, the way we exercise that discretion, not everyone always agreed with it. Right. But we were still able to pull together and put on put on a pill summit, for example, around uh, responsible prescribing um, on prisoner reentry, right? Sort of working with some sometimes members of the defense bars, probation and parole, um, able to put together a, a great summit uh, for employers on hiring people getting out of the prison. Not a likely place to find a prosecutor putting such a thing on, but we were able to work in that space, right? And I, because I thought it was important. A lot of the child sex trafficking work that we did involved a lot of other partners. Some sort of unusual. Um, combinations of people to get to a good result. So, you know, when the elections are over and and the people uh, of Rhode Island have chosen who they want their leaders to be, you know, regardless of party, um, you know, we ought to be able to come together and 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 move the state forward in a way that's good for everybody. Um, so I'm I'm confident um, that if I'm fortunate enough to get elected, I could I could help in that area. Are you in favor of? Offshore drilling in federal waters and expanding wind farms and yeah. uh, and kind of looking to the mm-hmm. future in that arena. Yeah, so I'm not in favor of offshore drilling, but but in terms of energy, I think one of the things that I've found is I've been out and about, and it could be we could be talking about healthcare, we could be talking about energy. I think one place where we as a state could do better is in strategic thinking around some of these issues, right? So we tend to look at whether it be healthcare or energy or some of these other issues. You know, we look at, at things on a transactional basis. We look at it from a very narrow focus, right? Do we think that this project is a good one or a bad one, right? So when we're talking about about uh, renewables, right? Um, we ought to be looking at renewables in the context of our overall energy plan. It ought to include hydro and gas and renewables, solar, and within renewables, solar, wind. And where are we putting them? How much do we need? We know nuclear is coming offline. We know we're probably going to get gains in efficiency going forward. So what's our strategic thinking around those areas, right? Um, you know, we, for, another one's come up recently, this, this biomass plant that kind of sort of appeared out of nowhere in, in, the, last, in, in yeah. the last week or so. And I haven't studied that closely. I have to admit that sort of burning anything sort of makes me think, hmm, should we be doing this, right? But where does that fit 
in our overall energy strategy that ought to be emphasizing our environment, protecting our environment, at the same time delivering the energy that we need for not only the immediate term but the long term. Same thing about healthcare, right? We look at healthcare in the context of individual transactions, and I understand why that's important, but we ought to be thinking about healthcare much more holistically. How accessible is it? How effective is it? How affordable is it, right? And everything that we do in healthcare ought to be looked at by looking through those three, the lens of those three things, right? So um, I try to look at, uh, regardless of what the issue is, I try to look at it strategically. I sort of have learned that in the 20 years I've been doing law enforcement, that you look at everything through a strategic lens and you've got to make better decisions if you do it that way. It's very interesting. So the broad stroke doesn't necessarily apply um, it's interesting with the wind turbines in particular, uh, it's, uh, it's become some of an environmental issue with birds sure. and, and whales and things of this sort. That's Fishing. why, and fisheries as well. Absolutely. So that's why it kind of somewhat gets grouped to me with offshore drilling, mm-hmm. because right. there is a consequence. Of right. course, the flip side, if you look at Block Island, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious that, um, it's a more sustainable way right. to generate energy, but you're, you're in favor of exp- exploring, wind and hydro and, and sure and absolutely so, so for example if, if i know there's there's for those of, of your listeners who follow what's been going on in massachusetts there's been a tremendous debate around hydro there right getting it down from canada getting it through the pristine forests of new hampshire getting it through maine or vermont however they do it native territories as well yeah correct so there's up. a lot of issues that go into this but if 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 it's going to get here somehow yep. in a way that is environmentally sound and and respects uh, native peoples then where does rhode island fit into that right they're one state away how do we how do we make that work you know you can go over you know i had to take one of my sons out to bristol the other day going over the mount hope bridge and you can't help um but not look at brayton point yeah and somerset and, and the uh, yeah, yeah and look at those reactors. and look at the towers and you know that it's mothballed and think where did that fit in our strategy i know why we needed those cooling towers because of the heated water going back into the bay yep. but when we were when we were thinking about that facility where were we thinking that in terms of the long-term strategic planning. I think we have to do that. My understanding is that the, in healthcare, the, the last strategic plan that we have for statewide is in writing, it covers 1988 to 1992, I think. So there's work to be done here. A lot of players want to do that work. Uh, it's really a matter of getting people around the table, putting sort of individualized interests, uh, checking them at the door and thinking about what's best for the state of Rhode Island, the people of the state of Rhode Island, around those three areas I mentioned a moment ago. Right. We've got telemedicine and all kinds of ways to approach community health right. now that certainly right. since 1992, it's, uh, it's, it's changed. changed. Yeah. Sure, sure. You know, going to the ER, my wife's a primary care doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, delivering health care in the ER is expensive. Uh, it's not your doctor many times, right? Um, and the wait times are long. That's not good for anybody. Now, some people need the ER, obviously, if it's a you know if it's a trauma issue. Mm-hmm. But to go in there for a sore throat doesn't make a lot of sense. So if doctors are able to adjust their schedules to see patients on Saturdays or Sundays, you know. Um, uh, you know, on a 365 day a year basis, that's good for the patient. They're seeing doctors who have access to their medical records. They don't have to wait as long. They can get an appointment, keeps them out of the ER, keeps costs down, right? So, you know, that's strategic, just one small example of strategic healthcare thinking that ought to be the kind of things that we're doing. That's very interesting. You're currently running unopposed, is that correct? As of today, I don't have an opponent, no. It, do you feel, you know, what, what's, what do you think the the secret mission here coming is there something coming up the uh you know down the line here yeah, or what's, what's, you know uh, i i've really tried to focus from the beginning i announced last october and i've really tried to focus on a couple things 
One is uh, my own thinking around these issues. You know, you, you can pick up the newspaper, the journal, Trump's journal, pick up a national, uh, a national outlet and see five new issues a day. Um, yesterday I opened the journal and there were five new issues. Um, and I did some uh, media um, in Woonsocket yesterday morning. Like, wow, there's five things that could come up today. I need, to, I need to stay up to speed on this. So part of what I've been focused on over the last six, seven months has been making sure that the issues that I already know something about, I keep on top of, and then educate myself around the things that I don't know as much about. The other thing is, is trying to meet as many Rhode Islanders as I can, talk to them about the things that are important to me and I hope are important to them, and hearing from them about the things that I don't know are important to them. And so I haven't focused as much on sort of, you know, other potential candidates. Um, I've tried to do my thing. And then, you know, as the race develops over the next few months, um, you know, uh, see how things go. That's very interesting. There's a specific issue in Narragansett. I won't put you on the spot, but um, as I understand the Rhode Island Constitution allows us to, as Rhode Islanders to access the beach uh, or any shoreline, mm-hmm. um, Narragansett charges They've always charged something to get right. on the beach as far as far back as I can remember going there. Right. Five bucks, ten bucks. Now they have this two hundred dollar per person fee for all non residents to access right. the beach. So there's a lot of um, tension already building up in the right. surf communities and also particularly in South Kingstown, North Kingstown, Charlestown, who right. you know, basically see themselves as one area, you know. Right. I mean um, what's your take on just shoreline access? Obviously, I, you know, I wouldn't put you on the spot to comment on that right, issue, right. but just in general, shoreline access, natural resource access. And yeah, one, of, one of the great differences between, you know, I was a resident in Massachusetts for about seven years between college and when Shelly and I moved back here. And um, that's one of the great differences between Massachusetts and Rhode Island, right? Rhode Island has much greater protection to the public for the shoreline. I, I'll get this wrong if I try to do this. I'm going to take a stab at it anyway. In Massachusetts, you can walk the shore below the mean low tide, I think. So you basically have to be in the water to walk the shore right. if you don't own the property in front of it. In Massachusetts and Rhode Island, we have a very different approach, right? Where you can walk on that exposed shoreline, right? Yeah. So I think that's great. I think, you know, again, our environment after our people is our number one asset, and that should be for everybody you know my little hometown of jamestown you know has a a public has a public beach residents can get a can get a sticker i mean you may be able to get a sticker i don't think you can get an annual sticker if you don't live there but it's open to everybody right Right. parking can be a challenge but we make do right we figure out ways to accommodate everybody i think that's what we ought to be doing we ought to we ought to make sure um you know we ought to respect communities and their ability to sort of uh protect their assets for their residents right i get that that's why in jamestown if you're a resident you can get a sticker but we want to make sure that there are opportunities through our state beaches and other ways to make sure that everybody in rhode island uh whatever their means wherever they live have access to one of our greatest assets yeah i would agree completely i mean it's it just seems like one of the most important parts of being a Rhode Islander is is having that access to the woods or yeah. to, uh, to the city or whatever. You know, of one, course, one, of the, one of the great programs, and I think this is great, um, that the Institute for the Study and Practice on, on Violence has done in the past. I don't know if they're still doing it. But they take kids from Providence, right, who may not see the ocean all that much. Or if they see it, they see a sliver of it right. sort of at the upper bay. And they take them to Narragansett Beach, I think, or Scarborough or somewhere down there. And they teach them to surf. Uh, but in some instances, they may even teach them to swim. I'm not sure. But it's great, right? You know, I'm amazed. You know, I spoke at a um, – I spoke at um, – I can't remember which high school it was. I know where it is. It's right off of um, Thurber's Avenue. I spoke at a Providence uh, high school when I was still used to I sat and I talked to the kids before I spoke to them. It was prom night. So getting them to pay attention yeah, was, was difficult, I can tell you. <laughs> so I talked to them a little bit before I got up and gave my general remarks. And I was explaining to them where I'm from. And you know, there's some kids from Providence. 
you know, for them, Jamestown may be on the other side of the of the state of the of the uh, of the planet. Right. So it's really important that not only do we have access for everybody, but we make it possible and we encourage Rhode Islanders who may not necessarily have the ability to get to some of these places to get there. It's why the bus service is important. It's it's why some of the work that uh, that Providence is doing, uh, the Providence After School Alliance, I think, also does something like this. Let's get everybody, everybody in our state, an opportunity to see what is one of our greatest assets. Most definitely, yeah. It'll be interesting to see where public transit goes as well. I've heard some a proposition for a monorail that goes downtown mm. or whatever it is, but it certainly is an inconvenience at this point, you know, for most people to navigate the state. Well, it is. It is yeah, and it's important. You know, one, and one of the things, you know, when I was just attorney, again, I alluded to it earlier, we really worked hard. I wrote one op-ed on this subject, actually. The only op-ed I ever wrote was about getting people getting out of prison back into the workforce. And one of the challenges for those people, as it is for, for many other people, is getting to the jobs, right? If RIPTA doesn't go all the way into Quonset Office Park, as when I was still attorney, it didn't do, right? But there are businesses that will hire, right, whether you're coming out of the prison or not, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So we've got to make sure that our public transportation system is funded adequately enough that it can get people to jobs and to things like the beach. Absolutely. Um, As U.S. Attorney, did you ever spend any time with President Obama in person? I did. I did, yeah. What's it like as a... Yeah. As a human, what's, the, what's that moment like? You know, I, I found him to be uh, very um, at ease with himself. You know, and uh, we met with him a couple of times. There were only 93 of us. We were all of his appointees. We were, all ta- we were all pulled together in the same direction as part of the Department of Justice. So he met with us at least two, maybe three times at the White House, um, not for long periods of time, um, but spoke to us, um, had a very easy way about him. Um, you know, spoke to us directly about what his expectations were. And I, and I think this is important. And I remember these words like they were yesterday. The first time he met us, we were in the East Room, you know, collectively waiting for him to come in. We had a picture taken. He said, but he said to us when he walked in, he said, I appointed you, but you don't serve me. You serve the American people. And I expect you to act independently and with good judgment. And I always remember those words because they captured the mission of what the Justice Department ought to be. And I think that's particularly important today, right, that the department has to be independent. And even though we were appointed by the president, our, we didn't swear an oath to President Obama. We, when I took that oath here in Providence, I took it to the Constitution of the United States, right, to serve the people of the United States. Um, and so that's what I remember about the president. I remember those words, uh, and I remember the easy sort of genuineness that he had about himself. I, my sense was that he liked people. He liked being with us. Um, and uh, good memories. Good memories. Quite an experience. It was. To say yeah, the least. It was a great ride. What's your relationship like with Senator Whitehouse? Do you still have uh, a relationship with him at all at this point? Yeah, so, you know, he was my boss when I was in the AG's office for part of my time there. Jeff Pine, as I said, hired me, so I worked, didn't have a ton of contact with Sheldon then other than in that sort of attorney general, you know, assistant attorney general relationship. You know, certainly he was, he played a big role in recommending me to President Obama um, along with Senator Reid. You know, from time to time I would bump into him um, when I was used to attorney, although, you know, memory, you know, Congress being a different constitutional branch, um, you know, we did not see each other a lot. You know, so now that I'm running for attorney general and he is running for U.S. Senate, you know, I do see him occasionally. Um, and we have a good relationship, as, as I had with Senator Reid. You know, I always found Senator Reid, um, you know, really um, to have a great, um, how do I put this, really um, brought sort of, 
solid, sober thinking to many difficult issues uh, from a real rational point of view, which maybe because uh, I've been a lawyer, um, you know, really for all of my adult life, that it's kind of the way I try to approach issues sort of analytically. Um, let's think about what makes sense here. Um, let's see if we can rally uh, around together to get to a result that will work for as many people as possible. Yeah, he's, he does seem like the wise man, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the, uh, the default guru in yeah, a way. Absolutely. You know? I bumped into him when I was in like high school, and he was it was one of those bars in Narragansett on the water, and right. he was just sitting there by himself, staring out, walking, right. you know, looking right. at the ocean, wearing a polo shirt, right. you know, just kind of incognito. And I just kind of gave him a head nod. I was like, "I'm going to let you have this moment because yes. this must this is this is as real as it gets." Indeed. Um, last question: Rhode Island is facing a homelessness crisis. Mm-hmm. I would say so I just moved to Providence in. Uh, January, so a few months here now, and I can't help but see as I drive around um, sort of a level of desperation that I didn't really encounter in New York except Mm -hmm. for in the thick of the... um what do you call this? The uh, fake marijuana crisis. Right, you know right. that I did see a similar behaviors right. and. Um, but what's going on here? I'm trying to figure it out. I've been asking, uh, interviewing people, asking, you know, trying to help uh, as, as I can. You know, yeah. but um, it seems like there's a systemic problem here that uh, that doesn't seem to be getting any better. You know? Yeah, you know, look, I think it's. I don't have the certainly. I don't have the answers, and it's it's far beyond my my area of expertise. But let me say this: I see what you see. I've seen it with my children as I've sort of driven around Rhode Island, and, and you see it not just in Providence. You see it. Um, uh, you see it in Cranston. You see it in Newport. Um, uh, there is there, and it's sad, right? It, it really does tug at you, and you're not sure how to help, right? In a direct way, you know how to help. Um, institutionally by supporting organizations that that do great work in this area. You know, certainly there's a mental health component to this, right, that many people struggling with homelessness um, struggle with mental health issues. So that's a place to start. I think we have to make sure that, you know, that we have, um, that people have access to mental health counseling. But but part of it, too, is is um, is somehow reaching people who... who um, have the right to to not want it, right? It, it's um, it's a complicated thing, and it, it and I've it, look I've personally I've struggled with it, right? You want to help the person you run into on a street corner, um, and yet you don't know that if you're helping, whether it's the, directly, whether it's the right th- right thing to do or not. And I often sometimes, and I'll just share this, I've often, when I've been confronted with that on an individual basis, I've often thought, you know, sort of what I do versus this person is between me and whatever, um, whatever higher power I believe in and what that person does with whatever help I give is between them and theirs. Um, but it is, it, you know, it is heart rendering. I've seen it in D.C. I was there for a conference and, you know, what, the situations that I run into where it's a parent with a child, right, who is asking for assistance on the street and you wonder... You know, certainly I'm concerned about the adult, but I'm more concerned about the child, right? right? What 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 is that child's life like? I don't have any easy answers. I think it's great that that you bring it up. I think it's great that we talk about it. I think it's great that that leaders, um, you know, know that it's something that's important and we need to focus on. We've got to dedicate resources to it. It's sort of like, to me, it's similar in a sense to, um, you know, we've done a lot of work, good work around criminal justice reform. But if we don't invest in probation and parole, the people that when people get off probation or while they're on probation, when they are paroled, if we don't invest there, our outcomes are not going to be good, right? If we don't invest in making mental health counseling and, and uh, shelter and, and um, 
access to housing, if we don't invest there, then these problems are going to continue to, to replicate themselves. I know that one of the challenges is that the shelters, um, including the one at Harrington Hall on the grounds of the ACI, can't stay there during the day. So, you know, you can shelter there at night, but during the day, um, you have to leave. So where does someone go? Um, where do they go to maybe get their lives back on track? Um, uh, thorny problems for sure, but important ones. It's good. It's good that you raise them. It's uh, it's apparent you're you're a person who loves the law, you know, and mm-hmm. and uses it, you know, to try to better the world. You know, would you? Is that a fair statement? Well, look, you know, I love public service. You know, um, I've only had one client since I've been back um, in the state of Rhode Island, which is the people of the state, and it sounds a little trite, but I will tell you that uh, I represented, you know, institutional clients when I was in private practice and I had student loans to pay off. I learned how to, you know, draft good documents and write well and think analytically. Um, but I've loved serving the people of the state of Rhode Island. It's been a tremendous privilege for me uh, to walk into courtrooms around the state and to stand up and say, you know, I'm representing the people of the state of Rhode Island. I'm representing the United States. I'm representing the state of Rhode Island. Um, that's meant a lot to me. Um, and I think there are lots of ways, you know, that, you know, I've often thought about how to describe um, the attorney general's office, and it really is uh, the people's lawyer. That's how it ought to be looked at, right, that it should represent the common good. You know, if, um, if there's a situation where a state agency is, is not doing what it should, then it may not be the role of the AG to represent that state agency. It may be the role of the AG to make sure that that agency is serving the public in the way that it should. It's a complicated, in many ways, legal question, but I, I thought of myself as an activist U.S. attorney. I like to think that if I'm fortunate enough to be elected as uh, AG, I'd be an activist AG, which means where I saw a problem, I would do everything I could to try to help. Well, best of luck to you. Thank you. you. Know, currently Thank running you. unopposed. We'll see how that develops. It's uh, I could change in 10 minutes. Yeah, we'll we, it's a long way to September. That's it the is. wild thing about Rhode Island. It is. Um, candidate for Attorney General and former U.S. Attorney Peter Norona, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good to see Real you. Real pleasure. Yep. Hey, thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform. You may also find us via the Newport Buzz or TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Google Play. Until next time, thanks for visiting Bartholomew Town. We'll talk soon.